what is the difference between your job and dr jayashankar's job well dr jayashankar is the political head okay so uh, the larger broader policy decisions the vision of the prime minister and the external affairs minister is implemented by the civil service uh, and you head the civil service so you are the head implementer of the policies that are decided by the prime minister the external affairs minister or the cabinet and you you implement a close call was also when i was actually booked on a flight uh this was in in vietnam and hanoi and that flight was on a particular day and just before that flight uh, my master got a message saying that his son had got admission in university so they decided to take their son and see him off in bangkok which is next door so they said look i mean you know there are few people in the embassy so why don't you stay for one more day by the time we will come back so the last moment i postponed my ticket and that flight crashed and everybody on that flight died so some of these are also fate Today's guest has previously served as the foreign secretary. He is currently the chief coordinator for India's presidency for the G20. If you don't know what these terms mean, don't worry. Every single conversation of TRS is created for school-going listeners as well. So we're going to cover the basics and we're going to go to the advanced level of geopolitics with this man. It's people like him whose geopolitical opinion should be heard more by the Indian youth. everyone's in the geopolitics today but please listen to the experts listen to their opinion and ideally do it on podcast just like this this is harshvardhan shringla sir on trs Welcome to the HV Shringla show. <laughs> I thought it was Ranveer show, but I am delighted if you start calling it the HV Shringla show. I am I'd be delighted. <laughs> We are going to learn so much from you today sir. But I'll begin with a simple how are you? Great. Couldn't be better. Wonderful to be in Bombay, wonderful to be in this lovely studio. So I have to begin by asking you a simple question when i'm talking to people like yourself who are working in the kind of positions that you're working in which is that if you were in america or europe and a 6 year old came up to you and said sir what do you do for a living how would you explain it good question <laughs> well what i do for a living is talk on behalf of the government to other governments okay um and uh, we the world is divided between different countries countries need to speak to each other the way they speak to each other is that they appoint representatives who talk to each other and i'm a representative uh, or at least i was a representative and so uh, it's a it's a matter of communicating between governments and between government entities okay. so that's how i'd put it in in very simple terms um and and i think uh, a lot of what we do is uh, really communicating um you know you need to communicate so there are no misunderstandings uh, it doesn't lead to conflict it doesn't lead to wars uh, i'm looking at the you know the real extreme side of things but you also need to communicate to cooperate you need to communicate to make sure that uh, that uh, you know your exchanges which is normal which is in trade and people to people contacts all that goes smoothly so communication between governments is an important part of interstate relations and that's been there from historic times you know you've always had uh, you had uh, chanakya wrote uh, you know kautilya wrote the arthashastra 
uh, it is a treatise written uh, you know uh, before the advent of uh, the christian era so in a certain sense um, diplomacy uh, and the art of communicating between states uh, had, man has always found the need to do it uh, once he formed entities uh, you know like a state or a geographical entity and uh, you need to speak to the next entity so that communication has always existed and today it's become a little more sophisticated because states have uh, i think uh, in many senses mastered that profession over a period of time and uh, and uh, that's what diplomacy is all about okay uh, that's what a foreign secretary does pretty much you pre- you you really are the head of the pack uh that engages in this communication with different countries okay so it is the articulation of your country's uh, you know views policies uh, expression uh that uh, that you actually uh, orchestrate as the head of that team hmm. so that team might be the part of government that communicates with other governments that's what you head okay and that you do it also through field offices which are your embassies and your consulates and your high commissions and uh, they you know further break down what you have to say um so um you're right that's what a foreign secretary does he he oversees that essential communication between your country and other countries okay so you're the leader of the unit that speaks to other governments on behalf of our government whether it comes to conflict whether it comes to pacts whether it comes to future strategy or future relations between the nations absolutely fun just about job. anything <laughs> yeah it it's fun you can't complain really uh, it could it could sometimes uh, you know most of the time it is fun it could be get serious from time to time but okay. then of course uh, that's what you're there for uh, when is it not fun sir <laughs> <laughs> well honestly if you like your job it's always fun okay i mean uh, i i i've always felt that you you must always do what you really like you must enjoy what you do so that it gets the best of you okay if you don't enjoy what you're doing then you shouldn't be there and i've always found uh, the line that i've been line of uh, diplomacy line of representing governments uh, to be to be an enjoyable exercise okay and uh, and of course uh, uh, as i said i mean uh, it is uh, something that if you enjoy doing even if it is sometimes onerous sometimes it's uh, you know many things that you work on are time bound um you also work on issues like uh, you know which are operational in nature you're working on uh, on a project for example uh, between countries you're can working you give an example of that for example uh, you know you uh, are overseeing say um, you know the construction of uh, railway lines between your country and say or neighboring country say nepal or bangladesh or you know bhutan uh, or you're constructing uh, roads that connect your two countries or you're constructing dams um surprisingly uh, the ministry of external affairs oversees all of these uh, projects uh, in foreign countries and uh, you're not directly uh, you know there are technical and uh, there are experts who do it but the oversight is yours i mean not always but if you are in that position you do it what what is the difference between your job and dr jayashankar's job well dr jayashankar is the political head okay so uh, policy decisions the larger broader policy decisions the vision of the prime minister and the external affairs minister is implemented by the civil service uh so uh, and you head the civil service so you are the head implementer of the policies that are decided by uh the prime minister the external affairs minister or the cabinet and you you implement it so okay. elected representatives uh, that are that form the political leadership are the ones who provide the broader vision the guidance and the policy guidance 
implementation of that guidance is done by the civil service. Of course, as the foreign secretary, you are also an advisor uh, to, the to the prime minister and the external affairs minister. Uh, not that the external affairs minister needs much guidance. <laughs> he was my predecessor uh, twice removed. And, uh, you know, you don't have a more experienced person. And of course, the prime minister himself is so exposed to international relations uh, that uh, he, uh, you know, in many senses is a master of what he surveys. And of course, uh, you know, I'm currently uh, handling the G20 coordination, which I enjoy doing because okay. it gives me a different facet of work, uh, you know, somewhat different from what you normally do. Okay. And a lot of my work involves uh, interacting with the states, uh, with stakeholders, partners, uh, organizing, uh, you know, something uh, which is as uh, extensive as the G20 on the ground. What is the G20 summit? So, uh, what is the G20 or what is the summit? Uh, Both. <laughs> well, the G20 is a group of 20 nations, actually 19 nations and one international, one organization, that's the European Union. And the genesis or the origin of the G20 is in uh, what was earlier the G7 and the G8. Uh, you know, you had the G7, which exists today, uh, the developed countries. Uh, and they took a number of decisions that uh, were financial and economic in nature. And, and a lot of the global decision making also was at one stage carried out of the G7. But when you had the financial crisis of 2008, they understood that you really need the emerging economies. You need uh, Russia, you need uh, China, you need India, you need uh, Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, Brazil. So these countries are critical uh, to global decision making when it comes to dealing with financial and socioeconomic matters. And so you had the G20 which was formed. And, uh, and the G20 has largely dealt with uh, issues that, as I said, financial and economic in nature. But over a period of time, because leaders meet, and I suspect because the normal agencies, intergovernmental agencies that should be doing this today lacks the representation, lacks the democratic mandate to be able to fulfill their obligations. The United Nations, for example, uh, is today largely deadlocked on geopolitical issues. Uh, the institutions uh, like the IMF and the World Bank today um, may not have the capacity or the mandate to live up to the expectations um, of the developing world, you know, countries that are indebted, countries that need greater financing, greater support, they're not up to the task. So you perforce go to groupings, smaller groupings, uh, not like the UN, but smaller groupings like the G20 to provide a level of global governance, which is not just financial and economic in nature, but also to, in some senses, even humanitarian or anything that is that meets the requirements of the job. That means the G20's approach should be based on helping other countries. And our foreign policy, if you look at our foreign policy, based on the spirit of Vasudev Kutumbakam, is really working for the larger common good, the global common good. Vasudev Kutumbakam is altruistic thought, like in terms of every being should benefit, every person should benefit, right? So, yes. Go I mean, G20 under our presidency has, you know, Vasudev Kutumbakam is... Uh, you know, the English version is looked at as one earth, one family, one future. Right. So it is in a certain sense an interpretation of Vasudeva Kutumbakam, which really means working for the global larger common good. The world is one family. And if you have to progress and you have to, uh, you know, humanity has to move forward, you have to move forward together. So you look at the future in a positive cooperative way. Uh, we're going to be talking about our neighbors because there's actually a lot of Pakistani viewers of the show as well. Mm. Uh, I don't know why they watch an Indian geopolitics podcast, 
but uh, from your eyes because you're technically not just a geopolitical observer but it's your profession like you know aspects of geopolitics that the common man cannot possibly know well we think so but uh, you know <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i think there's access to some uh, heavy levels of uh, big data but anyway uh, i'd like to ask you if you guys and the think tank around you guys was able to predict what's going to happen in pakistan today i don't know what the equivalent of pakistani is is called i think it's called pas there was a civil servants house that got burned to the ground and people were stealing food from that person's house and this is becoming meme material in india with someone stealing chicken from the house someone stealing uh, dessert that's the condition of that nation in some parts were you guys able to predict that this is going to happen to pakistan going forward like this kind of economic turmoil well i think the signs were there um you know the in terms of uh, uh political instability but also in terms of uh, an economic crisis in the making i mean we've been seeing a negotiation with the imf over a period of time the last few years uh which has been you know partly successful but uh, clearly not fully successful uh there has been talk about a bailout also not just by the imf but but by countries uh, that are sympathetic uh, to pakistan uh and uh, in a certain sense uh, i think a combination of factors um and it combination of the factors i just mentioned the global factors also have impacted adversely on pakistan it's impacted on our own entire neighborhood if you see uh, sri lanka um if you see many of our other neighbors also have been facing the brunt of situations which are beyond their control you know this the, the globe today is interlinked and interconnected in a manner that you may be thousands of miles away from an epicenter of conflict or disease but you are still adversely affected equally as people who are there right there so i think pakistan is no different they face the brunt of covid they face the brunt of higher prices of the import of fuel fertilizers food at the same time i think uh, you know management good sound policies are very important i think we are very lucky that we've emerged from covid as a resilient economy the government has uh, i think managed covid very well we've administered over 2 billion uh, vaccines uh, to our citizens uh, through the covin digital platform uh, we have uh, provided uh, very strong uh, financial and uh, food support uh, to uh, 70% of our population government i think has spent 1.7 lakh crore rupees about 29 billion dollars through the pradhan mantri garib kalyan yojana and as a result of that i think uh, every single citizen who is in need of that support during the covid period has got that support till the end of 2021 sound policies make a difference sound governance matters the right decision at the right time makes a lot of difference i mean i've been very fortunate to work uh, you know with the prime minister on many crisis situations and i think uh, as a country we really need to be very cognizant of the fact that you are in very very good hands and safe hands in a sound pair of hands guiding the system that extends obviously to the larger leadership uh, and people like uh, external affairs minister dr jay shankar everybody who's in that decision making process are people who understand there's a responsibility and take decisions that is in the best interest of the country this is my personal view no sure you know abroad we are portrayed as a fascist country portrayed like that's the truth and again i'm saying that from youth perspective 
I'm trying to correct that through the podcast because this podcast is watched by white people as well who sitting in America sitting in UK. Um again when I was in the US uh, I met a record number of senators and congressmen uh, about 450 of them for the simple reason that I wanted to reach out to each of them and say look this is the reality. And to many of them I said go and visit India. Yeah. You know go and see for yourself that's the point you raised. You know you're sitting here and you're being subject to a certain point of view. Uh, which is uh, which is subjective i mean you go and uh, take your own uh, get your own first hand opinion meet our leadership meet people on the streets go and see for yourself what's happening uh if you think that uh, you know uh, it, the development in our country is is uh, in some senses uh, discriminative uh, if you think that uh, there is a certain um you know a lack of uh, media freedom uh then go and have a look for yourself and see and i think many of them actually did come down and uh, um you know their their views certainly were became more balanced so uh, perceptions are important and how you shape those perceptions are very important and i think some of the uh, as it as i said coverage and some of the reporting uh, would give you a very i give the common man a very wrong uh, sense of view and uh, and i think um, you know it's a constant ongoing um, struggle to maintain you know a, a sort of a, a balanced position yeah pardon the intrusiveness of this question i just have extremely intrusive thoughts and now that you i'm just going to be upfront with you and ask you this have you been in rooms where the daud ibrahim situation has been discussed and why pakistan's not sending him back well uh, i spent some of my time uh, in the un the un security council where this issue was discussed you know that he you know in many senses he is a listed individual even in the un so listing some of these uh i would say terrorists and uh, those who are cross border offenders uh, from that point of view that means if committed a terrorist act but you've gone to another country and you've sought haven there um there are many mechanisms to go after them uh, one is the un security council which has the ability to uh impose sanctions on some of the individuals and countries harboring them the other is uh is um you know organization like the financial A- action task force fatf is a very strong instrument that can actually utilize the movement of funds to to control uh i would say um some of the um uh, control those who try to shelter and harbor terrorists you mean <clears throat> terrorists also have to earn money so all the businesses that they engaging in somehow the money is flowing in and that's out that's one aspect of it but okay. states also come under enormous pressure as in you can put pressure on pakistan exactly okay and uh, so uh, you know a number of terrorists have come and i mean you know pakistan has been forced to take people who have been sort of leading uh, very comfortable lives and put them at least ostensibly in prison um and and uh, and i think uh, you have to go hammer and tongs at these people i mean you really have to use every mechanism and instrument at your disposal i'm talking about not just india but the international community in order to ensure that uh, there is no more scope and no more justification for terrorism of any kind and that is very important and daud ibrahim comes under that category he has committed unspeakable acts of terrorism in this very city and and i think um, you know there has to be um, you know some accountability for that is he still alive but i mean i 
honestly speaking can't uh, answer that question because i don't know okay and i think i suspect that uh, you know uh, those who should know um, will do, have that do know <laughs> okay uh why isn't daud ibrahim spoken about as a subject in foreign media you know when they printing that imran khan article about how we're ruled by a fascist regime next to it there should be an article about how pakistan harbors daud ibrahim style people as well absolutely i mean we have been saying that all through that uh, you know pakistan is not only the epicenter of terrorism but is also supported a terrorist infrastructure and has indulged in cross border terrorism to our detriment uh, and mumbai you know 2611 and a number of incidents has been at the receiving end as the financial and commercial capital of the country you know you've tried to cripple that economy of the country through such acts and and i think uh, it's very important that we have a firm line and i think this government has taken a very firm line in dealing with this issue i mean it's a it's a no nonsense approach uh, you know patan court or uh, you know any incidents that happened uh, um i think uh, required uh, a certain moderate attribution um and i think that's the only way it works that is uh, you know you uh, do me harm i can inflict harm on you also um and certainly i think um that message has come out you know you have um we had the anniversary of 2611 uh, the uh, and uh, you know you had the entire un security council who came down for that uh, to mumbai and to delhi you had the uh, no money for terror uh, global conference uh, in which uh, i think the whole focus was ensuring that the financial flows to terrorist organizations are cut so you i think we are in the forefront of this counter terrorism effort how are terrorist mm. organizations funded <clears throat> they funded through you know uh, uh, sympathizers sometimes even through entities and sometimes even through governments sympathizers as in human beings who believe in the in the cause or the ideology or you know okay yeah and uh, you know after all um, an organization like isis was funded and there are a whole lot of people who went and joined isis also because they felt attracted to that ideology for whatever uh, you know reason um and uh, so i think those channels of funding which were actually earlier quite open uh, you know through normal bank transactions and you fund charity organizations in turn these they fund these organizations into sub organizations today there's a lot more international scrutiny on that sort of funding this is you know not just uh, in our country but globally also so you turn to you know other sources you know hundi hawala whatever it is i mean there are many ways of getting funds across but so it's a cat and mouse game and the authorities have to always be on top of the game to ensure that that funding for terrorism is cut as you know there was also the question of fake indian currency notes fican it used to come in uh you know through several borders of ours and uh, were also used to finance uh, finance terrorist activities be, be, uh, you know besides the issue of trying to derail our economy again through flooding it with uh, with fake uh, notes i think uh, the abolition of some of the currency that you know demonetization introduced took care of some of that but also much stricter uh, control regimes that was imposed in bangladesh and countries like nepal i think also helped that you know these borders were no longer uh, that conducive to that sort of activity so you've got to always sort of uh, 
how would you say uh, take steps to to control and to uh, you know monitor uh, some of this activity and uh, i think for a country like ours that's we are a large country we have open borders there's a lot of movement of people we are a free society people write what they want they say what they want they move around you know it's not a controlled state it's, it, and uh, from that perspective we are more vulnerable democracy by its very nature are more vulnerable to terrorists uh, anti nationals uh, you know saboteurs uh, for their pernicious uh, interests so i think we have to be our agencies and our authorities have to be much more vigilant and much more careful the question of um, even of uh, funds that come from abroad um you know those also i think uh, have to be very carefully scrutinized to ensure that it's not misutilized now there's a difference between you know funding which is which is uh, legitimate and which is above board and one that uh, in which explanations can't be given and you've seen even organizations uh, that are supposed to be above board have to some extent uh, not uh, sort of uh, you know uh, been clean on some of these issues of where they're getting them and where is the funding going mm. and and i think uh, you know there was it was necessary to scrutinize that very closely okay does this casual format of questioning bother you no i quite i'm beginning to quite like it actually why because it's a free flowing conversation versus and versus something that is structured where uh, you know you need to um you know uh, not only um sort of get your thoughts together but you also uh, you know have a situation where it is um you know you're defined by certain rules and here it is as free flowing means that you say what you want to you interrupt me when you want to it's it's a conversation between two individuals so it's more informal and uh, and accordingly more enjoyable and you're not sticking to you know it's not agenda 1 agenda 2 etc we are we are flowing where the conversation takes us yeah Uh, i think the truth kind of just reveals itself through these conversations and that's i hope there's not too much truth though <laughs> no no i mean the internet loves the truth my youtube channel loves the truth <laughs> truth is fantastic for views uh but i also think again the indian youth is super intelligent now so they can read between the lines um which is why it's incredible to learn from people like yourself you know this format didn't exist 5 years ago and now we get to learn from people like you who worked in the places you worked in and done what you've done keeping the same thought in mind i want to ask you about the most difficult phase or the most difficult challenge you faced in your entire career because you've had different job profiles over the course of being a civil servant i was uh, in bangladesh in dhaka at that time and when there was a terrorist attack what is called the holy bakery attack and these people these young people from privileged backgrounds tried to emulate the isis in my view took an entire cafe hostage and brutally murdered all the occupants of that cafe and in that was also an indian uh, girl a young girl uh, tarani jain and uh, and i was in delhi at that time that evening in which both the external affairs minister then late minister sushma swaraji and uh, dr jayshankar was foreign secretary at that time constantly in touch with me to find out and ultimately you know sadly uh, she you know we learned that she had been killed so i immediately rushed back uh, dr jayshankar said just take the first flight back i went back the first thing i went i straight went from the airport to the hospital where uh, i went and met the parents of this girl tarini uh, was her name and i met the parents of 
very lovely couple very very good friends but meeting them along with all the other uh, you know uh, parents and relatives of all the others who had died were all there in our hospital and it was a very sad moment and we were taken together uh, to the morgue to identify the bodies and that was one of the saddest moments to see parents uh, look at their loved ones who had been killed in that way i mean i think that was the most difficult phase of my career and uh, i can never forget uh, that experience i mean this sympathy that i had for the parents um, and the you know sense of injustice in a life taken away just for no reason a young life um and many young lives i mean she was not the only one there were but some 20 30 people who were killed that day so that is why i mean the the uh, you know you i was confronted first hand with the realities of terrorism on the one hand and on the other hand uh, also uh, the extreme uh, i would say sadness and despondency that the parents went through um you know at that moment that they were they had to really contend with the fact that uh, you know their daughter was uh, no more i mean it was really very very difficult and I, and i think that phase was difficult in that country because we had to really uh when the country itself uh, sort of geared up to fight terrorism at a different level uh, and uh, and i think um, to their credit succeeded uh, but we had to also ramp up our security and uh, uh, take steps that would uh, you know uh, insulate us in in any future such thing but what i'm saying is as an episode that was a very difficult personal episode for me has your life ever been in danger because of your job well um, i think uh, there were times in which uh, we've had uh, some you know um, close situations uh, uh, it could be um, in conflict zones uh, for example in uh cambodia when the civil war was raging, raging we had our uh, archaeological survey of india people who were working on the angkor wat but just on the outskirts of the city the khmer rouge operating and it was a, like a war zone you know in the evening at nightfall you know these people would be there and I had to go and inspect the place and uh, we uh, actually uh, were close to some of the firefights that took place um on another occasion um you know Uh, criminal activity uh, in south africa was quite serious and uh, there could have been some incidents that were involved we could be lucky the wrong person in the wrong place but uh, you know uh, a close call was also when i was actually booked on a flight uh, this was in in vietnam and hanoi and that flight was on a particular day and just before that flight uh, my master got a message saying that his son had got admission in university so they decided to take their son and see him off in bangkok which is next door so they said look i mean you know there few people in the embassy so why don't you stay for one more day by the time we will come back so the last moment i postponed my ticket and that flight crashed and everybody on that flight died so some of these are also fate uh, some of these are also product of situations that you are taken in look diplomacy is not an entirely safe you know we've lost our colleagues a very close friend of mine V Venkat Rao uh, was killed in the bomb blast in Afghanistan along with other people a number of our colleagues died you know during the covid uh, period uh, you were also uh, confronted with the realities of the place that you're in but that's that's part of your occupation and you at sometimes that puts you brings you in close proximity with uh, 
risks uh, but so be it you know you never let it get to you you just move on that's it while we have almost reached the end of the episode sir uh, there's one last question i have for you which is a fans question almost uh, this has become a very hot topic on the show and i don't think that there's a better person than you to answer this question the question is what is the legend dr jay shankar like to work with <laughs> because i feel that when you work with someone that's the truest form of character reveal that possibly happens probably deeper forms of character reveal happen when you work with someone as compared to even being in a relationship with someone like you really get to see the person's character so what is dr jay shankar like i think you use the right word is a legend okay i mean i think he's the sharpest mind in in diplomacy and uh, i have had the good fortune and privilege to work with him uh, you know uh, since i was in bangladesh as high commissioner he was foreign secretary in fact i he cut my tenure sh- short in thailand and said go to bangladesh and he gave me that opportunity because for every foreign service officer it's a dream to work in the neighborhood you know when you come to foreign policy you are you are the uh, i would say uh, the most challenging assignments and the most important assignments are your neighborhood contrary to opinion and uh, so to to have an opportunity to work in a neighbor like bangladesh was a great one and he pulled me out for that and and he gave me the opportunity and uh, you know every time i went back uh, you know on something i think uh, his decision making was instant and absolutely clear so his clarity i'm talking about the bangladesh experience but i think as the minister and i was the foreign secretary uh, so you know you have a direct line and you work very closely with the minister i mean i was struck by his clarity of thought i mean his thinking is absolutely clear um his uh, vast experience in diplomacy his feel for things and i think some of that uh, he has spoken about also comes out of experience and instinct you you know and you reach a stage where you have that instinct to and a feel for diplomacy and he has that as i said i mean you know you can't have i mean watching him converse watching him deal with difficult and complicated and sensitive situations uh watching him uh negotiate uh watching him um in in a more uh you know meeting larger groups of people interacting um he is uh, in many senses an amazing uh, phenomenon i mean uh his wit his ability his uh, diction his erudition his uh, grasp of uh, foreign policy issues and at the end of the day the application you know you may be all knowing you know maybe a pandit you may have the most amount of knowledge uh, in that field that you could offer but uh, in many cases the actual application and implementation uh, could be faulty uh, he has a, he has the ability to both think uh, visualize and act uh, in in a level that uh, surpasses everything so it's rare to see that in an individual where you can both uh, you know um uh, uh, have a vision of a certain concept but at the same time be able to implement it on the ground in an effective manner is i think uh, rare the one thing i've understood about diplomacy is that the skill sets involved are communication skills policy which i count as a skill set uh you know just the ability to come up with better foreign policies that would benefit your nation in the long term um i would also say just a balanced amount of aggression i think that is needed am i wrong in saying that 
in today's in today's world in today's context i think you need to have a certain calibrated uh, aggression uh, you know someone like dr chay shankar is a very calm very you know you can never provoke him into any situation so perhaps aggression is not the right word but he has the ability to uh, you know sharply take up an issue where it is necessary i think that's absolutely critical that you are able to convey a point of view uh, more forcefully convey a point of view uh, in a more persuasive manner there are different nuances in the way you handle it he has the ability to the entire repertoire is there with him that's what i'm saying that you know that sort of uh, uh, consummate uh, professionalism is nothing short of brilliance okay um, when he was the foreign secretary did he ever tell you about his political ambitions uh, not at all could could you have guessed that he'll be the foreign minister in a few years well i mean look uh, he was uh, always uh, someone who had abilities that were beyond the normal so you didn't think that uh, you you know th- that was the last that you and that was the last uh, let's say responsible uh, position that he would hold uh, he went into the private sector where he did equally well uh, when i was in the us uh, he was he used to visit the us from time to time because he represented uh, you know the international arm of the tatars and, uh, and uh, you know you dealt with him on a different level because he was not in government he was representing industry uh but even then i mean you know his grasp of uh, industry and the concepts that were there that came with it was was impeccable so it's just not just as a diplomat i think if you are a person with experience you have the ability to apply the experience in a positive manner you can contribute in any field okay. i i feel that uh, you know we are in the area of diplomacy but you can apply that experience you can apply that those skill sets in any situation including the including of- management including the position of pm no i mean what i'm saying is that you can apply it across the board in uh, i was talking with the private sector and industry okay that you know you uh, you are not only i mean as a diplomat you're dealing with issues which which is basically requires a certain level of balanced rational thinking a certain level of coherence as you said articulation and management of issues on the ground that's what you do in the private sector at senior positions also so yeah. his success as a diplomat translated to success as uh, as uh, corporate uh, as uh, a corporate uh, corporate leader and then is translated into e- i mean greater success as uh, as a political uh, you know uh, leader as a as a, as a minister one who leads our foreign policy i think he has uh, been an unqualified success and, and those of us who worked with with him are privileged to have that opportunity and i've seen him engaging audiences uh, on serious issues but you also bring in the the wit and the humor in these situations that works very well yeah all around speaking of works very well i want to ask you if you have gone and seen the comment section in the podcast that you did with smita prakash there's a lot of love for you okay. have you so honestly speaking i have not okay. i got feedback saying that uh, you know it 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 seemed to be have been uh, you know reasonably well received um but uh, now that you mentioned it i should go go back and yeah. look at that that uh, there's a lot of love for you uh, as in before every podcast i have to do my research and usually if it's a guest that smita ma'am has had on the show i watch that entire episode so let me tell you that even you have that kind of respect love and that kind of a cult following is beginning to grow on the internet so i thank you from the bottom of my heart sir for being on the show and speaking so openly 
uh i know i was a little too direct with you at some moments in this chat look in our game uh, you know uh, we faced all sorts of situations uh and uh, and uh, directness being direct is the best you can do because okay. you know it 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 comes to you frontly yeah we are used to uh, all sorts of uh, subtle ways of saying <laughs> things which 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 sometimes uh, is is more challenging than having this wonderful informal uh, you know um and fun conversation yeah i'm just repping the youth mindset at this point it's a very virat kohli mindset which is just let's talk straight to the point uh one last sawal for you sir what's your book about so uh, honestly it's not my book okay. but it's a book written on me by a professor in sikkim university um she uh, has interviewed me um but i think i couldn't spend enough time on this uh, on 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 providing inputs to her as what i wanted to because it's very difficult i mean very uh, i would say intense phase you know as as this foreign secretary and much of the book was was i think prepared at that time but she's done a good job of interviewing number of friends colleagues associates also taken a lot of material from published uh, sources uh, so put together something which i think from her point of view is intended to be more motivational more like a life's journey that uh, that is able to uh, you know um, in some senses guide uh, younger people uh, i mean as you say the young people today are uh, you know uh, very aware they've got a mind of their own uh, uh, but this book is is to say that look uh, here are the you know uh, ups and downs and the you know highs and lows and uh this is what you could do and uh one or two of the things that come out i think uh, as i read this when i look at it myself is that whichever post i've gone to and where i've had the opportunity uh i've tried to make the difference irrespective of what uh, you know it it may be good for me it may be bad for me i've never looked at that every place i've gone to i've tried to make the difference that that place is not our relationship or our uh, interests are one step uh, higher and that's been my endeavor in every place i go to i apply myself in a manner that makes a difference i believe that each individual makes a difference uh, each officer and someone in public service should actually make more difference because you are there to make a difference in the lives of people otherwise you should you should be in the private you should be making money for yourself mm. uh, but if you join public service uh, you should be working for the larger interests yeah how can you make the difference i mean the prime minister says you take a document and you see whether you need all these rules and regulations if you anything you don't need should be taken out make it as simple as possible mm. so you know you have uh, 100 people who come to you every morning for passport renewal something else something else the community comes to you make it as simple as possible for them cut out all the red tape uh in 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 thailand i had one officer there from 9 to 11 every day his job was only to talk to people and say what's your problem let me try and resolve it um it's not popular i must say because you know civil service and bureaucracy um by its very nature is status quo so you don't want change and when you introduce change then there's resistance in the system in bangladesh before i went uh, dr jayashankar was the foreign secretary at that time he said we have a severe problem in the perception that our visa system is not working well you do whatever it takes to resolve it and he gave me the fullest support of the ministry and uh, what we found was that we were issuing 5 lakh visas nobody knew what the demand was because there was a internet system and within the first 2 or 3 minutes like a railway ticket in those old days it was oversubscribed so it was finished and you would have these 
queues of people, you know, about a kilometer long from our high commission. As you win by them, you know, clearly they resented you because they felt that you were humiliating them. You stand for hours on end. That issue we tried to resolve. And we, I mean, I brought in changes and I insisted on those changes, despite, as I said, again, resistance from below. Hmm. Um, and one of the things I did was that I had a special visa camp. I said, let's see how many people come. Let's have the entire embassy work on the visas. Shut the embassy, you work on the visas. For three days, I had a camp. Anybody who wanted a visa came. 12,000 people turned up. The queues went. But we issued in the four or five days, we issued 58,000 visas. By the end of it, we went from 5 lakhs to 15 lakh visas. And that thing was completely resolved. But I did find that among the rank and file, it was not an easy exercise to push it through because, you know, people don't want necessarily to change. Honestly, there are over, you know, there are always also interests that mitigate against change. And uh, the system backed me completely. So you have a government that wants a clean setup, a setup that works well. And we are fortunate again to work. You, know, you do your job well, you're given full support. Gotcha. I mean, don't do your job well, that's, that's, that's your uh, lookout. <laughs> but uh, I mean, one thing, as I said, coming back to the book is that every place I've been, I've tried to make it an endeavor to make the change that is for the better. Whether I've succeeded or not is a different issue. That verdict is a different thing. But from my side, I've tried my best. Srinivasan, thank you. Uh, great learning from you today. Uh, again, sometimes I have to pinch myself to really believe that I get to talk to someone who served as the foreign secretary of India. This is my job. So it's crazy to be able to learn from you uh, and to be able to share all these learnings with the audience. I know that the audience is grateful to you as well. Once again, I point you towards the comment sections. And all I'll say to you at the end of this episode is just look out for the love. No, thanks a lot. And I must point out one thing which I which probably didn't come out uh, earlier is that, you know, I belong to a small place in a remote part of the country. I'm from the hills of Darjeeling. Um, and uh, in many senses, even though I've traveled throughout the country and throughout the world, I'm at the end of the day a Darjeeling boy and I go back to that small place in that part of the country. And it all comes from there. At the end of the day, uh, again, you know, um, if I am anything, it is because of the support that I've received from my parents, my community and my larger neighborhood. And then, of course, later the rest of the country, whatever it is. The fact is, you have an obligation to perform by those who are... Who got in you till there. Yeah. And who are, you know, with you. As you say, you talk about the love and affection. I think that is where that motivation is for people to do 100%. their best. What I will definitely say is that you're inspiring many more HV Shringlas to kind of go on similar journeys in the future. So, Thank you, Arindu. Uh, appreciate you. Appreciate everything you've done for the country. And I hope to speak to you again. Thank you, sir. Thank you. That was the episode for today. Absolutely love doing geopolitics specials on the show. Please send in your guest recommendations. Tell me what you thought of this episode. And do share this particular episode on all your WhatsApp groups. Share it with your friends. I feel there's a lot of people with a lot of opinions on the internet. But there's very few people whose opinions are worthy of being spread this wide. I'm hoping that this episode with Hashwardhan Shringla sir finds itself on most Indian WhatsApp groups. I know it's a very ambitious wish, but that's what I'm hoping to do through this show. I'm trying to put out the opinions of subject experts, of industry leaders, 
and of people who've held positions of power it's their opinions that we should be listening to so whether you're a listener who's under the age of 25 or over the age of 40 i hope you enjoyed this particular episode prs